Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. This week's guest is Kathy Davis. Kathy shares with us how she got her current role supporting BAE Systems move to net zero. And she also shares with us her proudest achievement, which she described as awe-inspiring. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Stories. I am Alex Michelson. I'm the Head of Research and Development at Silver Fox. Alongside me today, I've got Nicoletta. Hello, my name is Nicoletta Catalina and I am a second year on electrical and electronic engineering at the University of Greenwich. And our special guest today is Kathy Davis. Kathy? Hi, nice to be here today. My name is Kathy and I'm Head of Strategy for BA Systems. Brilliant. Well, that sounds like an interesting start place to start. Uh, do you want to tell us what a the head of strategy does? Uh, yeah, okay. So the head of strategy, um, in terms of our um, group, we're quite a large group in BA Systems. There's about 85,000 people worldwide that work for the company. And we have a relatively small head office group that looks across that company to uh, determine more about where we should grow in the future, but also where we need to collaborate better across that group to uh, do, I suppose, more things really. So that's my kind of area. And I, I guess my remit for group strategy is around um, sustainability, synthetics and simulation, and also a little bit of the emerging space business, which is quite exciting. Okay, what what, what is emerging space? Presumably that's up in the air. So in terms of emerging space business, the uh, um, piece I suppose it's really interesting is low earth orbit, which is uh, a growing market. And um, it's easier to put things up into space into low earth orbit so that's where this that's where the international space station is but that's also where things like the one web satellites are all going um and so actually the the satellites that go up there they're quite small they're quite compact these days um but they're also very powerful in terms of what they can do from a kind of capture of imagery um understanding what's going on in the world so uh it's a really interesting place to start to move into is there is there a risk of running out of space in low earth orbit oh in terms of the clutter uh, yeah yeah i mean there is there is actually quite a challenge because everybody is uh working in that space area now i suppose and yeah there's a lot of pieces going up there um there's also the issue of space debris and um you know, I mean, from an engineering perspective, there are some really interesting challenges about monitoring that debris that's going around space, understanding how you can pick it up and take it back out of space is quite mm. a big challenge. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is becoming quite a cluttered environment. But space is exciting. Space <laughs> is exciting. I think I don't think it's any secret that we're, we're, we're moving that way. Um, no. And from from our perspective, we've just acquired. So actually, part of my role in group strategy was to um, acquire a, a small um, company that works in the commercial and defence space um, Leo segment. So in space missions, they've just joined um, our group as of September this year. And um, yeah, we're really excited about the capabilities that they have. And in particular, they've got a, a concept of rideshare. So coming back to the uh, kind of piece of having lots of satellites in space, one of the things they're doing is actually enabling um, a number of parties to put payloads onto one satellite so that you can share that ride. A bit like a bus in space, really, I suppose. You could have oh, that wow. analogy. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I think that, that 
that brings us quite nicely on to um, your involvement in sustainability. Yeah, yeah. So I, I became involved in sustainability um, uh, a couple of years ago, really, probably when the, when the lockdown started, actually, I started a piece of work that was looking at um, what people are currently doing within sustainability in particular in relation to the maritime environment so large shipping and um, that kind of thing and it was really interesting to see the different types of fuels that people are thinking about so if you're to look at that kind of thorny problem of removing fossil fuels from our future maritime environment uh, there's a lot of challenges to that but also a lot of options at the moment and people are kind of placing um, investments in uh, a number of these fuels, so ammonia, hydrogen, uh, synthetic liquid fuels. And kind of looking through that, trying to understand where should we be from a defence perspective and where should our warships tend towards on that was really interesting. So from that, um, I was lucky enough to actually be invited to work on the BA Systems Net Zero plan. So we've been formulating what we're going to do to get to net zero over the next um, few years. So we have a plan for um, net zero across our sites and emissions. So for those that know about sustainability, that's scope one and two. And we're going to do that by 2030. Um, our products and um, scope three, so the usage of those products, disposal of those products. And I suppose more importantly as well, the supply chain that comes in to make all of those products is called scope three. Mm. Um, that's, that's a more challenging area and that will be 2050 that we're aiming for in line with the UK legislation. Yeah, it's quite a challenging piece. So my role in, in the centre is then looking at that sustainable product innovation that we can put into play um, and where can we start to make um, moves towards that sustainable future for the product. So electrification, energy optimizations, and, you know, those investigations around those alternative fuels and that kind of thing as well. In a, in a, in a warship point of view? Uh... Uh, from, from a central perspective, it's across all of our... Um, portfolio so that's broader than warships but yes I mean in a warship yeah. you know if you were to look at that there's kind of a few straightforward things you'd think about the fuel usage so you'd think about can I operate my warship or my ship better so can I do yeah. things that uses less fuel um, can I change that fuel to something that's um, cleaner for the environment um, and, you know, people talk a lot about carbon, but we do have to remember the other emissions as well that are monitored. Um, uh, or, or can I actually do things in a completely different way? And so you could kind of do some really, uh, I, I suppose you could do some different changes in how you how you provide a capability. You mm. don't have to provide it in exactly the same shape and form that it's been there before. So is, is that is that nuclear? Or is that electrification? Well, because um, obviously we've got nuclear subs, and I, I won't, I won't go too too far into that. Google, you can Google Orktag if any listeners are um, <laughs> are interested. But yeah, I I personally think it's unlikely that we'll go to nuclear on ships. However, you know, we do need to think that there are new types of nuclear fusion coming forward and so the generation for nuclear technologies are uh, safer than previous mm. nuclear technologies have been so there's always an evolving kind of technology landscape and it's important to kind of consider that at all times not just to rule it out just because it's got a bit of a brand around it okay yeah um but personally i think we're more likely to move to a um 
a synthetic liquid fuel. Um, so uh, you've, you've, I suppose, I suppose with um, sustainability, if we just take fossil fuels, you've got a great, you've got a great setup at the moment. You've got fossil fuels that are freely available around the world, where you've got the same fossil fuel that's used in aircraft and ships, pretty much. I know there's diesel and kerosene, but you've, yeah. you've got supply and logistical kind of um, setups just as you need it. To rip that out and replace that with something is a huge, huge ask. Um, and you know, if you look at something like a um, a commercial jet for long haul, uh, you can only run something like that at the moment on a synthetic version of kerosene. You wouldn't mm. be able to run that on hydrogen or electrified because the plane is too big. And I suppose you know, when you look at fast jets in the defence arena, it's the same problem that the actual energy uh, density that you require and the um, uh, the power that you need is um, is really significant. And so actually, you'd need something like a, a, a synthetic kerosene. So, so then you've got to look at well, how will you do that? And 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 you can do that through kind of two different routes at the moment. There's a biofuel route, which people are doing quite a lot on at the moment. So mm. there's quite a, a mature pathway set that's developing there. Um, uh, but there are kind of drawbacks with that biofuel. So if you um, consider uh, something like um, heifer, which is a hydrogenated ester fatty acid route, whilst that's been approved for use in aircraft, I think at the moment, if we wanted to get to uh, the RAF's um, uh, ambition of 50% SAF as a drop in into their engines, you need about five times the global supply of heifer to do that. Yeah, I, I actually watched a video. I think Porsche are developing a synthetic fuel. Um and they they're in is it Peru? I, I don't wanna I think it's mm. Chile. Um and they are they would supply half a billion litres or half a billion gallons of fuel per year, but the global demand for fuel at the moment is closer to forty billion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I um, had heard at a different um, conference recently that you probably need to build over 5,000 new power plants to be able to give us enough fuel to do what um, we currently do with fossil fuels. So, you know, that's a, a huge investment. That's multiple billions, isn't it, to invest in that and get that right. So I think this is why some of the problems will be quite a long time to resolve because that market um, uh, and investment has to be placed to actually get all of the infrastructure in place to make some of these things more realistic um, but also at the same time there's a um, an economic challenge with that that the current uh, kind of methods are quite expensive relative to mm fossil fuels so without some kind of lever with the carbon tax or something like that it's going to be quite hard but yeah i mean we talked about the biofuels the other the other kind of route is the electrofuels where you kind of use electrolysis to create hydrogen you combine that with the carbon from probably carbon dioxide capture from the air and then you can actually create the fuel that way you know the um i, I suppose the key drawback with that at the moment is that you need uh about 10 times the amount of renewable energy to create one amount yeah. of energy on the other side to a 
and then you kerosene and that seems incredible you know in terms of yeah. where will you get all of that energy from so yeah that's that's why people haven't fixed it yet <laughs> but yeah. they will i mean they will that's the, you know? that's the thing we've got to remember is in order to make a difference the the behind the scenes needs to needs to also be green you can't just have it green oh, yeah. at the point of of um of of use which was the main selling point of electric cars in the early days was oh you they 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 carbon they have zero carbon emissions and I'm, I, I'm, obviously it's changed a lot in recent years because we've we've developed a much greener energy base um but now but in definitely in the early days when we were still heavily reliant on coal i mean, i'm looking probably 10 15 years ago i think there was a there was a a misleading commerciality to it i think I think you're right. I think I think there's a three life piece, isn't there, that needs to be considered mm. throughout any engineering change that's made here. And it's really easy. I, I suppose the analogy is the is is a balloon, and you can squeeze a balloon in one part, but you've got to make sure it doesn't bulge out somewhere else. And yeah. and the whole thing about sustainability is exactly that problem. It's about a true reduction as opposed to, you know, just kind of reducing in the bit that you're responsible for. Yeah, so, just feeling good about it. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that means there's quite a lot of cultural change that needs to take place because in all of that, you've got to accept that things won't be as you've done in the past. You know, and the electric car example that you gave is a really good one. You know, if I if I consider that, you know, you've you've got people changing how they make journeys now, so they can charge on route or whatever they need to do. Um, and people will accept that. If I then play that back into kind of the defence arena where I work, actually that's something we can't do. We can't have, you know, our our, our warships stopping en route to recharge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and sitting there for however long. Exactly. So there's a whole kind of performance and user requirement that's got to be considered in that as to what you you can take. But it is interesting how well people have adapted to the changes for electric. Um and, you know, I think the cars are a good example of that. You know, we've got in Bristol the um, electric scooters, which are, you know, also mm. interesting. We've got them in so, London as well. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of on the fence on them because I love the fact that they're there. But actually, from a road user perspective, um, they don't seem to have any regulation at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure about that side. I'm sure there's kind of a bit of a danger there. But, you know, actually, it's a, a great... Um, way of reducing a number of the cars that go through bristol so you know you get some pluses and some minuses don't yeah you, and everything but i do i do have sort of visions of not not probably not quite so bad but those pictures of of hanoi in vietnam with just queues and queues of mopeds um basically i mean obviously they're, they're smaller footprints so you can get more people but if they're only carrying one person then, then you know, you just end up being completely trafficked out. Well, I think you know, if you look at the UK roads, we've already got issues with the amount of traffic. So you know, there is that whole thing about you know, I suppose how do you move to more sustainable transport in general and encourage people to use other forms of transport? You know, so, so there are lots of things you can do, but actually, that's all about culture and people wanting to, isn't it? in mm. the end you know how do you travel to work i drive but i i 
I walk. I uh, I live tw- about twenty miles from my office, so it'd be a bit of a bit difficult. Um, and th- and that's the thing, way. isn't it? So, so I, I I understand where where you are with that. So from my perspective, I've been in my home office now for the last couple of years, and I travel just for um, uh, meetings that really have to take place face to face. But actually, you know, if I wanted to use public transport, there isn't one bus from my village every day <laughs> and mm. it only goes to one place. So it's not really very easy to do that. So actually, the more we get of things like electric cars and that sort of thing, probably the better, even yeah. if they're not quite as sustainable as we first hoped. Going back, you said by 2050, we were meant to have the zero carbon emission plan. Do you think that's feasible considering how many industries and how many basically buildings we need to replace or adjust to be electrical or manufacture electrical fuels or biofuels? Yeah. Do you think that would be something we can actually do where we stand so, now? Do you know, I'm I'm really optimistic about it. I, I won't um, say it's an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. But actually, from a UK perspective, we've got the first kind of... Um, really important point in there that we've made it legislation to do so. So from a a business perspective, you know, we'll all be reporting on how we're achieving those emissions and how we're Hmm. um, making our way forward in that kind of new world. And that will get tighter and tighter as we go through time. So, you know, there's there's a a certain amount of reporting today, but in 10 years time, that reporting will be different, won't it? And we'll be looking at doing things better. I think... um, because of that, then there will be pressure from a number of different stakeholders, but equally there's pressure from the public as well. So it's an expectation that we will become, um, in general, yeah. you know, cleaner. Now, now that, you know, there there are some challenges in here, and there are some hard to abate emissions that will be uh, very difficult at that 2050 point. I think probably the point is it's net zero. So actually, there's also a question of what can you do that would actually help that would um, take us kind of the other side of that. And so if you look at, um, I think it's the Drax programme up in um, uh, the north east of the country. I think it's Yorkshire, but I might be wrong there. <laughs> um, the Drax programme is all about carbon capture. So taking that carbon out of the air. And, you know, there are lots of plans if you look at kind of the research landscape of how could we put that carbon perhaps back into the um, oil wells that we've got under the sea. So at least even if we can't stop all of that carbon emitting, maybe we can actually capture it and hold it somewhere, which I suppose is what we've done with nuclear waste before, isn't it? Coming back to Nicoletta, I think I think in a way it's 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 not a great answer that it's not zero, but I think we do have to be pragmatic about yeah. this and realistic. And so what can we do to get ourselves down to net zero means doing other things as well. Um, you know, and people talk about putting more trees in the ground and that sort of thing. And I'm all for that, but I think we need to do a little bit more than tree planting. Silver Fox proudly supports engineers with all their cable, wire and pipe labelling requirements. The Fox in a Box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon, saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field. For more information, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus 44-01707-373727. So what do you think would happen with the vehicle we already have if we are to switch to electrical? This was actually one of the topics... um, a friend of mine and I had, what would happen with this? Can we convert them somewhere or 
recycle, but what do we actually do with them? And everything we have in already. terms of the vehicles we have. So, um, yeah, I mean that's interesting. So I was talking to somebody last week, um, and and they were saying that they've got a conversion kit now, which actually um, they've applied to some classic cars, so they can turn them from uh, old petrol cars into uh, electric cars um, and keep kind of the classic look of the car, which was really exciting. Mm. Um, you know, lots of things can be done. So I think. I think it's a really um, open uh, environment for doing new new um, technology and, and those kind of conversions. The, the problem, I suppose, with it is the kind of cost behind it. So actually, you know, whilst, whilst that kind of conversion might be worth it for a classic car because of the inherent value of that classic car, when it comes to like my car, which is, you know, 10 years old yeah. on my driveway, Actually, it might not be price competitive to do that. So this would be like trying to sort um, to solve the problem would cost more than trying to erase it in a way yeah, you're pro- and start new. Yeah, exactly. So you might be better at that point, you know, just saying have have a new car and run that car. Yeah. Um, um, but of course, then you've got kind of this disposal and recycling problem with the extant car. But yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think this is sort of where we are. There's there's no silver bullet to any of this sustainability thing. It's it, about yeah. making some trade-offs and some balanced decisions, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's a really tough one because I do, I do subscribe to the statistics that it is more environmentally friendly to keep an old car running because of the disposal and, and the environmental cost of building a new car which obviously there is and i used to work in i used to work for nissan as a design engineer so i've seen mm. parts being flown all over the world delivered just in time etc etc and that's huge there's no there's no there's no uh um there's no question i can't i don't think there's any doubt that the cost of the environmental cost of building a new car is massive but then you have to look at each old car individually I mean, I don't know what car you drive, Cathy, um, <laughs> but it might be that every time you press your foot on the accelerator, this plume of, this plume of black smoke erupts from the back. <laughs> um, in which case, I think it's yeah. probably safe a safe bet to say that taking that off the road is 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 not going to be um, a bad thing. Yeah, but where do you put it? That's the thing. I mean, it could be that you. Yeah put it in a junk uh, in a breaker's yard and you just take bits off it as and when people come with the same car and say oh have you got this part um it could be that it just gets compacted and binned off and chucked so on a landfill there's, somewhere there's definitely more about recycling um component parts and and certainly when we design our platforms you know the recycle part is is part and parcel of that um, what's called the CADMID life cycle for us. So that's kind of the life cycle that takes you through for, from the creation of the concept all the way through the design, manufacture and into disposal. Um, and, you know, that I, that that emphasis on how you recycle has become more and more prevalent. So that's a plan that you put in place when you design the product. I, I think of those sorts of things and that kind of um, approach to design is is more prevalent now as well than it has been in the past, you know, it comes back again that from a sustainability perspective, people will be expecting that. They'll be expecting you to understand how you're going to avoid, you know, filling kind of um, 
all these all these refuse sites and landfill sites and that sort of thing that's got to you know it's got to change hasn't it hmm. so you're obviously having having discussed that you're obviously very very interested in uh, sustainability uh, and you mentioned that 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 first or your your you entered into the field during during lockdown what mm. sparked it uh well it was it was that um piece about understanding what's going on in that area so so my roles in um my career really have kind of been twofold i've done some which around the delivery of products and actually um designing and building things and then i've done a whole load of um projects around technology and innovation and kind of futuristic thinking and so at the time i was in a technology role um looking at uh the different kind of um pieces that might be coming our way so you know i've i've worked in things like autonomy and um a little bit of uh um cyber protection at some points you know and so it just kind of it's one of those things it was up and coming you could see it was going to be something we should be looking at and it was really well, what, what, what is the art of the possible today? What are people doing? And so I was looking at, you know, people, people are reintroducing um, uh, wind sails um, as autonomous wind sails on ships, which is really quite mm. crazy in a way, isn't it? Yeah. But it's also really, when you see the concepts, they're just so exciting about how can, how can people do things differently given that the technology has changed so much so that combination of autonomy and electrification or autonomy and wind sails you know they they kind of work really well together and actually i think having advanced other areas of technology you can make um better products in unexpected areas because it makes a difference to the cost price for a consumer so um you know I, I suppose, you know, an, an example of that for us would be um, we've recently started a program that's looking at um, autonomous barges on the Thames. So in combination with um, Corey, which is a, a waste energy management company, but also mm. with um, Thames Clippers who are looking at a new ferry service. And in both cases, you know, it's, it's really easy to electrify a barge. Um, of a certain size you know as long as it's not too big because if it's too mm. big electric's a bit of a challenge because it can't really move as well as it would want to um, but actually because they tend to be smaller boats you'd then have more of them and so then you'd need uh, higher numbers of crew to manage them and actually mm. that cost of the through life piece of managing all that crew makes them uh, a little bit less affordable but by introducing some of the autonomy aids that we have from our other kind of ships, you can actually reduce some of that crew complement that you'd need across all of those boats so that it's not uh, increasing a through life cost for a consumer. Yeah. And so then they can move to a green solution or a greener solution, really. It's not green. (laughs) It's greener. (laughs) No, it's greener. But I think that's key because... I, I, I am in no way a climate change denier or anything like that, but I think the world we we're we're losing battle and someone once said to me, You can't make perfect the enemy of better. So just because it's mm. not perfect you can't you can't not do it yeah, just it's... because it's not perfect. You've got to take those steps. 
I, I think that's exactly right. It is it is a journey, um, and um, it's about doing small pieces at a time, you know. And and in some ways, that's no different to when we do larger programs. So so from my perspective, I've um, uh, worked quite a lot in the maritime sector and so design of large warships and that sort of thing. Actually, you always break that down into lots of, lots of smaller projects so that people can focus on those pieces and then start to bring them back together to make mm. that holistic design. And those things take, you know, a large number of years to come together as something that you can put out to see and actually have operational. So in some ways what we're doing with the other pieces is no different is it it's just a different scale again yeah different scale and a different subject yeah yeah well yes because <laughs> it's broader isn't it it's broader to yeah. everyone yeah I, I don't think anyone well people i think most people at least in london can relate to the thames clippers but probably not to a type 45 so um you have a degree in mathematics is that right i do how, how did you end up in this field with a mathematics degree? Oh, well, yes. So quite unexpectedly, I think is the truth of it. So I, I had, um, I suppose, at um, school and um, university, I've always loved maths. So maths has been my thing. But sadly, since university, I've done very little actually in maths. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, I like all the problem solving and that sort of thing. So actually, when it came to looking for um, a job when I was coming towards the end of my maths degree, um, I actually uh, unexpectedly found a job in engineering because uh, one of my so one of my friends on the course made me come along to this aptitude test, um, and uh, I actually got the job. And unfortunately, he didn't, um, <laughs> which is oh. a little bit embarrassing. Are you still friends? Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, it was really interesting. So having having had the aptitude test, I got invited down to go and have a look at the company. Um, and yeah, I was actually quite wowed by what they did. You know, I th- it wasn't anything that I'd really thought about going in to do, you know, shipyards, bigger ships hadn't really crossed my mind. Um, so the company itself was a software company, a software house. And actually, um, you know, my first job um, was coding. Um, I had never coded at all um, at university or before. How, how did you find that? Um, do you know what? I think the thing about any job is you get trained to do the job that people want you to do. So um, it is a little bit daunting. Um, it was probably a bit of a shock in the first few weeks from memory of kind of understanding what a computer was. I mean, you've got to remember, I've I've lived through a different um transformation I suppose I mean we've just been talking about climate change but actually I've lived through a digital revolution because uh, Mm. the first time I had an email address was actually when I started work Um, so you know they gave me a I I do remember them giving me a number (laughs) which was really odd (laughs) and they gave me uh, an email address and um, you know I thought for a moment I wasn't even going to have a name I'd just be this number from then on but uh, it was okay Um, yeah so really really curious to actually move into that whole kind of domain people that I went to school with I don't think it was there was maybe a handful that did software or something like that or worked in IT when they left university but most people probably didn't Um, and so uh, you know it's been a few more years before they've actually even got into having 
basic things like email. So, you know, it's a really mm. different change to think how we work today and how, you know, I mean, we're recording this through a computer. Um, it just wouldn't have happened when I started work. And I'm not that old. <laughs> Did you find your degree any relevant to, to the software, to coding? Yes. Because it's math. Yes. So, I mean, um, so there's, there's two things, I suppose, about my degree. So my degree, I, I focused in the end on applied um, mathematics, which is, you know, uh, fluid dynamics and all that sort of thing and applied to various different places. So, so that whole application mindset, I suppose, of solving a problem in the real world is something that was really relevant. Um, but also, you know, the, the other grounding you really get from something like mathematics, I suppose, is that logical ability to kind of problem solve. And, you know, I mean, that's the bit that I've always loved, the problem solving. And, and software, to be honest, it's logic problems, isn't it? I mean, it's just, mm. it's great for a mathematician in that sense. You can just kind of <laughs> wallow in problems <laughs> and solve all those logic challenges and make it make the code really um, neat. Gosh, you've got me going now. Um, but, you know, after a while, I suppose um, for me, and this is just my kind of reflection on things, I kind of got to where I felt I'd done it for software. And so actually, you know, those challenges weren't quite so um, exciting for me because I kind of knew how to crack the problems. Does that make sense? So for mm. me, that's when I then had to move and do something else. So, so at that point, um, I went off to go and try systems engineering, which is really kind of bringing together all those systems, getting them to talk to one another um, and uh, understanding the routes through and the kind of the performance that you want across a number of systems to get an effect out of the end and that sort of thing. So a little bit different, but yeah. On that note, is there anything that you wish your younger self knew about your current profession or your route through engineering? Oh, well, yeah, do you know what? There's, there's probably kind of that, I suppose, that cliche one of it is okay to fail you know, people don't like failure, do they? But actually you do learn through making those mistakes. And so it's it's all right to do that as long as you learn, I would say. But probably, you know, the, the most important thing is to think about what, what your own values are. So what matters to you um, and, and make your career in that context. And, um, you know, to, to bring a bit of light on that, I suppose, um, I've, I've for years, people always tell me you have to go and manage a large team. You have to do a big delivery role um, because that's really important. People do that, have that on their um, CV as kind of a tick box, and then you can move on to much bigger things. Um, but really, that's not important to me. That's not what makes me tick. I like, mm. um, you know, an intellectual challenge. I like variety. I like innovation, you know, looking at the new technology. That doesn't necessarily need a big team. So I'm better choosing roles that suit what I like. Um, and how I want to work to make me kind of the happiest person I am, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And then, then you do well in your role. So I, I think that's what I would go for is, is, is remember what you really like as a person and, you know, choose that. Good. That's a good bit of advice. Not just for ca- young Kathleen, but for anyone listening as well. Yeah. You've had a long way to get where you are right now do you have any proud moments any like the proudest moments in your life so far yeah do you know um so i think i think there's probably a couple um that i've really kind of remember um so so um 
probably the first of those is, you know, coming back to the systems engineering role, I, I actually did work on the Type 45. Um, and so I worked on it um, pretty much in the design and uh, development phase. So it's kind of more of a, uh, I suppose, a, a computer design at that point and a lot of kind of um, pieces that fit together through that uh uh, computer interface and paper designs but going to actually see it in dry dock before it was launched was just awe inspiring really you know I mean mm. it's um, an incredible feat of engineering that you can feel really quite proud of when you see it and yeah I, I don't know there's nothing to compare that to you're just kind of so small compared to this massive massive ship because when it's out of dry dock I mean there's all the bit that you never really see under the water and you can see all the things that you kind of worked on yeah it's incredible to do that you know um yeah but yeah the memorable moments I suppose um I really enjoyed doing some technology events so coming back to technology I'd, I'd never expe expected to do anything in the kind of event space um in my career so there's another thing so I'm an engineer um, well, a mathematician turned engineer, and all of a sudden I'm being asked to do what is really a kind of a communication style of activity, which is really out of my comfort zone. Um, but bringing together, you know, people from across the company to actually put on this show um, at fairly quick notice um, and getting it mm. to a professional standard where you've got, you know, 100 people who are there just doing exactly the right thing at the right time. Um, coordinating all these guests that are coming in actually you know you felt kind of looking back on it that was quite a big thing to pull together over a few days and um, really quite exciting um, and obviously I got to play with all the interactive tech you know so from my perspective <laughs> I had a bit of a, a geek moment as well <laughs> did any of that getting to play with the tech cause you to buy anything that you thought I, I could do with that in my life Oh, no. So um, these tech um, pieces were the tech pieces that we have in the company. OK, so I can probably afford them, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the one that... But um, did it did it go like, oh, you saw, I don't know, a bit of voice activated kit and you thought, oh, do you know what? Actually, an Alexa or a Google Home oh, or know what? something along those lines. So that's really funny, actually, because at home I'm probably really tech free and that sort of thing. So, so I know all about the um, technology through work and maybe I just get enough of it at work. But I, I don't have anything like Alexa's at home or, you know, augmented reality goggles for nothing. So, yeah, I'm a bit of a disappointment there. I, I'm don't, I, I don't know, Kathy. I don't know how you cope. It will change your life. <laughs> apart, apart from when the Internet goes down and nothing works. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, my my uh, me and my girlfriend moved into a into a flat about a year ago, and she got super super into. She actually works for Amazon, but she got super into getting Alexas everywhere, Alexa activated blinds, Alexa activated lights, everything. Right? Yeah, and, it, and it's so cool. It is, and it, it is amazing. Other than the fact that Jeff Bezos is listening permanently, um, <laughs> but the other day, the other day, the internet stopped working. And I could do nothing. I couldn't open the blinds. I just sat in darkness. I know that's pretty drastic. No, I do have a colleague. He's very similar. Then I think, and um, yeah, I think at last count, he was verging on a hundred devices that were interconnected in his house. Oh um, no, we're not. Which... We're not quite that bad. <laughs> but then it is only a small two-bedroom flat. So um, 
you know, I think we'd struggle to fit 100 connected devices in oh, there. You'd be surprised. <laughs> 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 but I, I think, you know, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you experiment with all that technology at home. I think that's a really good thing to do. Um, I probably should do more, really. But, you know, time. <laughs> so going back to, to your proudest moment, the, the Type 45, hmm. seeing that in dry dock, which, which does sound pretty spectacular. Um, how long did it take to go from those initial drawings oh. to to seeing that? Oh, do you know that's that's um, a good question. So that was probably a good. I, I'd say at least ten years. Ten years. Wow. So it took oh, ten yeah. years to, to draw it on some paper. So obviously so it's, it's more complex than that. But <laughs> can we just draw a ship? <laughs> yeah. No. Just it, it's it, I suppose it's worth knowing that you know there are kind of. Uh, the life cycles in um, platforms that we build, they are incredibly long. And they're, they're, mm. they're shortening now with the advent of the digital technologies to being able to do digital twins and doing more of the design up front in a computer, so even more than we have done in the past and being able to test things through those digital ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're long programs. So I think, you know, the 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 type 45 started life as a, a tri-nation um program um and that was probably uh being thought about for probably something like 10 years before i even started work on it in the early days mm. um and so then from the design phase you're talking uh probably at least uh seven years to get the full design together um, and then time to actually build the ship as well. And part of that timescale is about the complexity of the program that you're putting together because, you know, they are um, really, really uh, complex and kind of, um, you know, it's a system of systems problem, a true system of systems problem. And, and you've got, you know, just to kind of give some sizing, I suppose, if we look at Tempest, which is the next generation fighter, I think they're talking at the moment that the power... Um, an energy demand on that fighter plane is the equivalent of a small town. Wow. So when you scale up to a ship and you think about what you're putting on that ship, you're, you're creating a hotel for all of the staff that are on board of that ship to begin with. So you've got mm. to create, but, but more than that, you're creating the water supply, you know, the, um, you know, there's a whole civil engineering piece, isn't there? You've got the whole electrical engineering piece that's going on. Then you've got kind of to make that move, you've got the power and propulsion system. And so all of those things kind of come into play. And my, my area um, is uh, uh, was more to do with the combat system. So the effects that, you know, sit on the top side of the ship. And of course, then you're trying to look at the, the, the case of how that works through to give the effect that you're looking for. So all of those things are, are generally development programs in their own rights as well, because when you start mm. a new kind of um, vehicle, you're probably looking at an upgrade to a lot of the systems that are on board because you want to have something that's more state of the art and they're designed to be out there for, you know, a long time. So, so you, don't want to be, you know, yeah. 30 to 50 years they'll have in the water, that sort of timeline. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're, you know, things that will last. And do midlife upgrades happen on ships? Oh yeah, they get yeah. they get facelifted. 
<laughs> they do, they do. So there's always um, upgrades going on, whether it's new kit for the combat system or actually, you know, um, they do also relife um, ships quite late on with um, new power and propulsion as well as needed. Um, that's normally quite a difficult change, though, because obviously, you know, you kind of build your platform around a core element like that. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, and then you've got other kind of pieces around that are trying to tell you the health of that ship. So you've got systems that are telling you um, how uh, the different components are performing and when they need maintenance. And so there's all kind of those maintenance schedules that you have to think about and bringing ships in to have bits replaced every so often. Just like you would with a car, it has to have its equivalent of an MOT every so often, doesn't it? Yeah, every year, hopefully. I'm just amazed. 10 years for a project is like somebody can you can change colleagues so easily like at least four or five people come and go so there will be yeah there will be people who i guess who yeah. started it but never never ever got to see it in the dry dock like you yeah did, so being able to see the final product i think that's yeah. that's a big achievement so, so that is a really interesting um piece that you've just talked about with the kind of longevity of people on the program so actually i think there were you know I, I tend to think there are quite a lot of um, what I would call lifers in BAE that kind of <laughs> go through the stay, stay in BAE, but they might actually work in one particular part of that engineering life cycle for most of their career. And so, you know, you will have you will have the people that are really good at doing the early design piece, and that's where they work on each of the different programs. And other people really thrive on the integration and the trials perspective. And and so, yeah, it's it's um, a different piece. But actually, you know, what's good about being in a, a um, a company like BAE is actually you get invited to some of those sorts of events anyway because you've worked on the um, systems mm. um, so actually you know when I went back to see that type 45 um, in dry dock I don't think I was actually still on the type 45 program at that time I think I'd moved on um, but yeah they were just like you know come and have a look and see it so it's brilliant yeah there's a bit of a family piece going on there isn't there <laughs> yeah it's a celebration um, ultimately when it goes in the water, isn't it? Yeah, gets. Did, did you crack a bottle of champagne on it? Does I that think still so, happen? Someone does, but it wasn't me. Wasn't me. <laughs> Has to be someone more important than me. <laughs> Are BAE hiring? Can people get a job? Oh yeah, always hiring. Yeah. Always. Hi- how do they go about getting that? <laughs> or applying? Or applying? Oh okay, so. Um, Right. I th- I'm, I'm sure you've asked me a difficult question there, Alex, because actually I don't know because I've not applied for a while, but I'm sure you can look um, <laughs> on the website and, and there will be um, a portal to apply for roles just like any company does. Um, I think, you know, there's there's probably two aspects. One is there is the uh, graduate route um, uh, where there's a number of graduates that come in. There's a normal kind of professional route for post-graduation. But I, I, I think the thing probably to draw attention to is also the apprentice route, which is really um, highly thought of. And so I think we have over 50 different types of apprentice now in the company. So oh. whilst, you know, we've talked about my career coming through a degree route, actually we do take on an awful lot of people who don't have degrees, who do just as well in the company because the training is brilliant. Brilliant. And uh, if you wish, how can your, our listeners connect with you online? Uh, it's probably best through LinkedIn, where you'll find me quite easily, I think. Thank you very much for, for your time, Cathy. It's been so Thank interesting you. listening and chatting. Um, and I'm sure that we could have 
uh, bar, bar the time constraints, talked about sustainability for much, much longer. We probably could. <laughs> I think there's a lot to do there, isn't there? But thank you yeah. very much for having me today. It's been great. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engineering Stories podcast. We hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.